Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth and the God who has recorded for us truth of your great deeds in the past. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit and even Jesus working in the midst and in the hearts of his people, the apostles in the first century. We thank you, Lord, that we were able to learn of what they have done by your power, by your enabling grace. Lord, we pray that what was spoken on that occasion, and now that we've heard it on this occasion, Lord, we pray that these words will be used by your Spirit to bring a message of hope and a message of promise, a message of blessing to each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing on in our series, looking in the book of Acts, and we have looked last week at what I would call an amazing miracle in which a man who had been crippled all the years of his life, 40 years, was healed, completely healed, immediately healed, and restored. Here he is, we read in verse 8 of chapter 3, the man is walking, he is leaping, he is praising God. You don't hide something like that. It was obvious. And he accompanied Peter, and John, and others of those early Christians and went into the temple complex for the first time in his life. He's jumping, leaping, praising God. And I would think that the reaction of those who were there on that day was, that's awesome. Something like that Long Island accent that's sort of thrown in there. Because it would cause, as it says in the text of Scripture, verse 10, the crowd was filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to that man. And I am convinced you have to take this in consecutive order. Peter says, you think that was awesome. I'm going to tell you about something that truly is amazing, something that truly is awe-inspiring, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in pointing them in this direction, I believe that what Peter is doing is he's taking the crowd now that's going to gather around him, a crowd that is full of curiosity, as how could this have happened? Explain it to us. Peter is not going to focus so much on this man. He's not going to focus so much on that one miracle. He is going to focus on the greater thing in which God has done. And I'm literally going to sort of use verse 26 of chapter 3, if you have your Bible open, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you. So hence the title, one of the greatest blessings of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want us to think about now Peter providing us three reasons, three reasons why Jesus' resurrection from the dead is really one of the greatest blessings of all. First of all, it was a surprising blessing, a surprising blessing. On the one hand, as we read this account of the man who was healed, who was crippled all his life, and now he's healed, we have no name, no specific identity of this man. We don't really, not much is ever given information about him, but Peter begins to give a lot of information about Jesus Christ. He emphasizes that Christ as the one who was raised from the dead, was indeed the one that Isaiah had predicted was going to come in all of these different servant songs that we find in the book of Isaiah. And even though Jesus was indeed the king of kings, 
He came as one who did not come to be served, but he came to serve. Peter notes the fact that this one who came was a suffering servant. That's something they never did really put together too well in the first century until after Jesus had died and been raised from the dead. And so Jesus surprised many people by taking the form of a slave, the lowest level of that particular society. And Jesus obeyed his father by becoming obedient, such obedience that was Amazing to see his submission and willingness to do exactly what the Father did to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's an all-powerful king who willingly laid down his life for others. What an astonishing, what an amazing king. Having made that point, Peter then now begins to really ratchet it up a little bit, and he begins to make a sort of an inquiry here. He asks his audience and challenges them, saying, now how is it that you rejected such a selfless, serving king? How is it that you, only a short time ago, less than two months ago, how is it that you people demanded that Barabbas, a insurrectionist, a, per, a person who had committed murder against uh, Rome and the Roman authorities, that he would be released by Pilate and in, and in his place leave Jesus there to be put to death. How is it you could ask for a murderer and put to death the Prince of Life, the author of life, Jesus Christ? Why would religious people like you, Peter is saying, insist that this murderer be released and that you put to death the man who is sinless, the man who's done nothing wrong? Now, it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it was three times, the scriptures tell us, that Pontius Pilate made it very clear Jesus was innocent. He did not deserve what was now being demanded of him by this crowd. And when all these religious pilgrims called out for Jesus to be crucified, when they disowned him and said, he's not our king, we want nothing about him, we don't want anything to do with him, Pilate finally reluctantly agreed to save his own political skin. And they shared now what Peter is saying, the crowd before him who was a part of that incident only four weeks earlier, they now must share in the blame for putting to death the Holy and Righteous One. It's as if Peter is saying, hold on everybody. There's a lot of excitement here about this man being healed, but I got, there's something else. You have some unfinished business you need to face up to. I assure you that Peter's audience was surprised. They were surprised to hear Peter hammer so hard on this point. Here is Peter so bold as to accuse them regarding the rejection of Jesus Christ. In Peter's mind, the, the crippled man who had not been able to walk for 40 years needed, yes, to be physically healed. He knew that this man needed to be made whole in his body, and he's seen God do that. 
And now Peter is saying in a similar way, religious people, like the crowd before him on that day, as well as a crowd of any people before him on any day, that is, even atheists, no matter who we are, religious people or atheists, we all need to be made whole. We all need to be spiritually healed. All of us have joined with that crowd in rejecting the kingship of Jesus on some level. All of us have offended God. All of us, along with the crowd that Peter addressed in that temple, we've had a role in putting to death the holy and sinless one. And therefore, moral guilt before God does indeed bring serious consequences. It is the unfinished business we all have to deal with and face at some point in our life. Because the consequence of our sin and our guilt before God is that we are separated from God. We cannot have a relationship with God. And death ultimately is the outward indication that something is wrong on the inside of us, and therefore it's something as out of order in our life and in our world. And Peter reminds these folks gathered before him that Jesus' death on the cross was actually God's surprising provision for sinners who have indeed bear a guilty conscience and guilt before God. And even though the stain of sin may be dark and deep, and I can't imagine a deeper or darker sin than what these people are being accused of, and that we ourselves also share in, Peter says, look at verse 19. Those who repent, chapter 3, verse 19, those who repent, those who return, can have their sins wiped away. Jesus is the servant of God, predicted in Isaiah 53, verse 5, who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' atoning death obliterates the stain of our sin. His blood is our cleansing agent to remove the stain of our sin. And everyone who repents, everyone who flees to Christ is promised this full and complete forgiveness of sin. I can't help but think of that wonderful text in Isaiah chapter 1 that promises that though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now how do you know for sure that complete forgiveness is given to each one who repents and each one who returns, each one who believes? Maybe you're like some people who have nagging thoughts that they deal with again and again. Is God fed up with me? The God who knows me, the God who knows all about me, is he fed up with me and all my repeated failures again and again? Or do you think to yourself, no one can be as generous or as forgiving as what God promises me here. Not even God can be that kind of generous and forgiving because isn't there a limit to God's patience? Or maybe you struggle with a thought and you hear a voice in your head that says, well, forgiveness is really for everyone else. I don't think I'll ever know for sure 
I've been completely forgiven. And what I would like to suggest, if that is the kind of thoughts that plague you, and I guarantee the people who are hearing Peter make this point, they were beginning to have such thoughts go through their minds. Rather than being consumed in our thoughts about what we have done by our sinning, may I strongly suggest to us, as Peter is trying to point out for these people, we need to focus and we need to meditate on what God has done with our sinning. Notice what our text says, that Jesus was raised to life. He did not die because of his own sin. He died as a substitute in our place. And God raised Jesus to life so that in order to prove that Jesus was not punished on that cross for his own sins, he died for our sins. He was raised from the dead to verify that the payment that he made for our sins was adequate. It was sufficient. In other words, the resurrection is God's seal of approval for this sacrifice that Jesus offered. You see, a seal of approval means it passed inspection. Uh, we recently have bought a used car. We went from a 99 to a 2014. We've moved up in the world in technology and different things this car can do. And I've noticed that the car repeatedly indicates that it has been very carefully inspected. Once, twice, three times, all these different parts, all these different steps as the car was assembled Somebody had to very carefully look at something and they were verifying this was done correctly, this was done correctly, this was done correctly. And so really the car has on many parts of it, if it's not a lemon, so far it's good. Uh, if it has all of those, it met all those inspections, it's what? It has the seal of approval of the manufacturer. It was made properly. It was made according to the standards. And what Jesus is, what, what the scriptures are pointing out here to us is that the resurrection of Jesus is saying to us, listen, God has put his seal of approval on what Jesus did in order to say you can know complete and full forgiveness and have your sins wiped clean. Some of us have our past haunting us. Some of us find it very difficult to get past our past. In the resurrection of Christ, we are learning to see what God did in order to make it very clear to us that not only is our past sins are covered, our present sins are covered, our future sins are all covered because of the, the stamp of approval in Christ rising from the dead. There's more than just this one surprising blessing. I want us to think also about the surprising blessing in the sense that since Jesus is alive, he cannot be dismissed and completely ignored. Every other religious leader who's ever lived years ago, all they've left behind now is just some of their writings, maybe? Some of their possessions? You can examine those, you can read those, you can choose to adopt them if you care to, but only Jesus Christ vacated his tomb Jesus is reigning right now on high. He defeated Satan. He is alive evermore. And he will one day judge the human race. 
There is no escaping this fact. All of us will give account to him. And so Peter is urging his listeners to repent, verse 19, and to return to Christ, to turn to Christ, and therefore take part in this blessing of being made right with God right now. He is saying, don't delay in this issue. Do it now before it's too late. Because if you choose to ignore this warning and you go on in life and say, I'm going to keep Jesus at an arm's distance. I might know about him. I might read some of his sayings and some of his writings at some point in my life, but I'm really not ready to return to turn my life over to him, to truly yield to him and submit to him. Then my friend, you will face an unpleasant surprise in the future because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You say, what's that? You will come face to face with Jesus one day. And you will have to give an account for every sin of word, of thought, and of deed. Or you can act now and repent. You can find this true consolation in the gospel now, and you can come and say, Lord Jesus, I admit that these things are true. I admit I need a Savior. I admit that you died for me on that cross, and therefore I surrender myself to you and receive the gift you offer to me of your death in place of mine, your resurrection as my gift of new life. And therefore, if you do that, you can stand absolutely confident before God, fully assured that you are pardoned for sin. You can enjoy, look what the text of Scripture says there in verse 19, times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. My friend, I assure you, that is not the experience of a religious person. That is the experience of someone who has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. To associate being in the presence of the Lord and being refreshed is similar to what Jesus said to the woman at the well who comes there clearly an outcast, clearly a social person who is a misfit, someone who does not connect with the people of her time. She comes out in the middle of the day when everyone else does not. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus encounters her, talks to her, realizes there's a lot of brokenness in her life, a lot of issues of relationships she's gone through one after another after another. And she's longing for somebody to love her deeply. And Jesus says to her, listen, I can give you living water welling up in your soul. What's he saying? He's saying if you're truly thirsty, you will find refreshment in me. I can remember years ago in which when I was in camp, we spent several days on the Appalachian Trail. We were hiking on this very steep incline of the the mountains there in North Carolina, the western part of North Carolina, and the mountains go straight up, they go straight down the other side, and we would do that for several days, up a mountain, down a mountain, up a mountain, down a mountain. It was grueling. It was so hot. It was humid. You're carrying this backpack. I can remember running out of water halfway through the hike, and uh, I can remember being so thirsty and finally getting to the point where we would have at our place we camped out, we would have another new source of water, and I remember guzzling water and finally having my thirst quenched. Jesus says that's similar what it means to know 
that no longer is sin and shame hindering you from enjoying God. Now you can enjoy the Lord every day, finding your soul refreshed through Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of grace is a blessing that is incredibly generous. Consider the magnitude of God's grace. We give to Jesus all of our sin, and we receive from Jesus all of His righteousness. Indeed, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest blessings for sinners who need to be cleansed from sin. Amen? Amen. Well, secondly, as we look at this text and we think of it as teaching us about the greatest blessing and found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's a life-transforming blessing. A life-transforming blessing. The account that Luke wrote in his gospel and in the book of Acts makes it clear that the disciples' lives were transformed because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If you rewind a little bit, go back to a couple of months before this account here in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we have Peter sort of popping his buttons, assuring Jesus in front of all the other disciples, absolutely, sincerely, and I think with great sense of confidence, saying, listen here, Jesus, I am prepared to die for you at any time. I am so loyal, I will never turn my back on you. I'm committed. I'm, I'm ready to go the full length. And then a, a short time later, Jesus is arrested. He realizes that he himself may soon be arrested. And so the fear wells up within his heart. And he begins to, at that point, say, I don't even know this guy. I, I, I have no idea how you could ever associate me with him. He's not one, of my, not one of my teachers. I'm not a follower of him. He totally denied any association with Jesus. He was afraid that he too was going to be arrested and eventually what? He might be killed himself. And these other disciples along with Peter were so perplexed, so confused when they saw that their rabbi was flogged, he was mocked, he was eventually nailed to a cross. And what do they do? They sought refuge by locking the door and getting in an upper room and just saying, we're staying here, man. We're not going anywhere. We're not going to even see you in public. And then a couple days later, first day of the week, the women who went to put nice perfume upon a dead body so it wouldn't stink in Jesus' tomb come running back to the disciples and they claim that the tomb is empty. And a very interesting verse, Luke 24, 11. I love this phrasing. This is just a great, great line. It says that Peter and, and John and the other disciples, these words that they heard from these women appeared to them as nonsense. Don't you love that? Nonsense. That's another way of saying that. If you want to be a little more paraphrasing, we can say, you ladies are crazy. That's what they were saying. You're crazy. We don't believe you. So what do they do? We read that John and Peter, interestingly enough, having heard the report that someone had told these women that Jesus is not here, he's risen. So they run to the tomb, and sure enough, the stone was rolled away. And they look inside the tomb, and what do they see? All they saw was grave clothes. Nobody. 
and Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. Now these men at that point are eyewitnesses, along with now a bunch of other people who are eyewitnesses of the greatest miracle in human history, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And over a period of 40 days, again and again, they encounter Jesus Christ in his resurrection body, and it's very clear that he is who he is and that he has been raised from the dead because he's eating with them, he's talking with them, and they saw him come into the upper room that was locked shut. He just all of a sudden appears with them. Clearly, Jesus was raised from the dead. So that we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, there were many convincing proofs that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And this truth changed their lives. Because Jesus rose from the dead, they knew that Jesus had power then over death. They knew that Jesus' teaching was true and reliable. They knew that the greatness of Jesus was clearly unmatched. There's nobody going to be greater than he. The gospel indeed was true. Condemned sinners are loved by God and welcomed on the basis of his death, Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. And so what do these disciples do? At that point, money and the desire for comfort and security, which they had enjoyed previously among familiar people and familiar surroundings, that became far less of value to them. They abandoned their former means of employment. They devoted themselves to the spreading of the gospel. And Peter's messages, we saw in chapter 2, now we're in chapter 3 and part of verse 4, provide a compelling evidence that Jesus' resurrection transformed him from being a fearful, discouraged disciple to this bold, determined witness of Jesus' victory over death and sin and hell. As a matter of fact, I think, if you look at the text, Peter, in this demonstration, particularly right here in this passage, has been set free. He's been liberated from an idol in his heart, the fear of man. Peter was reticent to speak the truth before those people there in that fire, in that, in that courtyard of the high priest, only time earlier. He was a person who went from jabbering, jabbering, jabbering about anything and everybody, no hesitation, to now being a person who was scared of what was going to happen to him. And the fear of man is dissipated, being replaced by what? Absolute confidence in Jesus and his promises, knowing that what? He doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. He no longer needs everybody's approval. He no longer needs them to treat him nicely in order to feel like he can be uh, secure. He now is secure in the gospel of Christ. And so what does he do? It changed his attitude. And most significant, if you keep reading through the book of Acts, Peter, who had a disdain for and an avoidance of people who did not share his values, who did not share his background, people who were non-Jews, people who did not have the same customs that he did. He didn't want anything to do with those people. Do you know what the gospel did to him? It began to change the way he looked at other people. Rather than thinking that he was comparing himself and seeing himself as better than everybody else, he began to realize, I'm as much in need of a Savior as they do. I therefore have no reason why I can't associate with them. And now the gospel has mobilized him, as it says later in the book of Acts, that he actually goes, knocks on the door of a Gentile, 
a person, again, is totally different from him, has nothing in common from the background point of view, he knocks on the door and steps in the house. That's a changed man. And for some of us, for you to step out of your safe comfort zone and speak to a Muslim, to speak to someone who is totally different from you in a background, someone who's from another country, another culture, someone for you to, to actually befriend someone that you don't know much about and seem sort of threatened or intimidated by is an example of how the gospel can change the way you view people and have a heart of welcoming and loving other people who are different from you. Peter, along with the other disciples, was dramatically and amazingly changed by the living Son of God. Have you been changed? Is there evidence that God is changing you? The more you realize who you are in Christ, the more you realize what you have in Christ, the more you realize what Christ is there to do for you, any, any different situation you may find yourself in. The gospel, the blessing of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, is designed to change lives. Praise God. And that brings me to my third point this morning. The blessing of Christ's resurrection from the dead was an exclusive blessing, exclusive. You see, there are some people who view the resurrection of Jesus Christ, once they start to be confronted with it, it becomes an inconvenient truth. If you look in the text here, um, verse 2 of chapter 4, well, let's back up verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the guard Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Greatly disturbed. There are some people, when they hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it becomes an inconvenient truth in this sense. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, my life now is screwed up. Someone now has put a wrench in the gears of my plans, my agenda, me being in control of all things, no longer works. <laughs> it's an inconvenient truth. Because the gospel, proclaiming a sinless king who died for our sins, was buried, raised from the dead three days later, for religious people, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because they don't like and they're not thrilled about this truth, the inconvenient truth that no matter what amount of rituals you may perform, no amount of prescribed prayers that you may offer, no amount of donations that you may make to charity can ever make you right with God. You see, some people love to hold on to their belief that, and, their, and their assumption that good people are rewarded by God someday. And that's what they're banking their whole life on. They live their life based on that assumption. They don't want to have the issue of their inward heart condition, their inward heart issues being exposed and brought to light. They don't want to listen or hear to Jesus' critique of their vain attempts to gain their own righteousness by their own self-improvement. So some people love to be the one in authority to make up their own spiritual realities and rules and their own spiritual systems 
And so they come up and say, well, I'm just going to dismiss the afterlife altogether. There is no such thing as anything after this life. We don't have souls as human beings. We are just physical bodies when we die. That's it. Other people assume that there is no one right way when it comes to the ultimate matters of spiritual destiny. Oh, they love to take a little bit of this spiritual teaching and take a little bit of this spiritual teaching and they love to bring it together and mix it all together and therefore we have something that makes us feel pretty good inside. They find great comfort in thoughts of universalism. That is, in the end, everybody will eventually somehow be saved. And that's where they like to sort of live their life, finding comfort in such thoughts. But here is Peter pointing out that the resurrection of Jesus Christ sets Jesus apart from all other spiritual teachers, all other spiritual leaders, because Jesus is the only one who accurately predicted his death and resurrection. Jesus is the only one whose teachings was backed up with this powerfully persuasive, miraculous sign. And the empty tomb of Jesus is an essential element of the gospel. Because let's be honest, a dead Savior can save no one. A dead Redeemer cannot impart eternal life to anyone. Imagine if you're a person who has been trained by someone to do CPR. You've been a part of a class and they brought in an expert and the person shows you how to do CPR, which by the way is very good training. I want to commend all of us to learning such skills. It is indeed quite important to know. But imagine if that person who is the CPR instructor, you realize, you read in the newspaper or find out from friends, this person has passed away. Imagine, what can that person do for you if you begin to have your own heart attack? They can offer you nothing. Jesus triumphed over the grave. Jesus broke the back of the curse of sin. And when sin entered this good world that God had made, the unfortunate effects of that, the consequences of that were disease, discord, and as you know, widespread death. And Jesus is the only one who has demonstrated power over the greatest of all enemies, death itself. There are many skeptics who dismiss Jesus. They say, you know, I look at him as a, a respectable spiritual teacher. But you got to remember, Jesus claimed over and over again to be God. And he was accused of blasphemy. He was put to death for making that true affirmation. <laughs> and that's what Peter's saying here in verse 11. He's trying to point out that if he's using a building metaphor, he's saying, listen, some of you who are the builders, you have your own man-centered, man-generated religion. You rejected Jesus. You said, we don't need him. He is not the one we were hoping he would be. But the stone that the builders rejected, Peter goes on to say, became the chief cornerstone, the most significant, most important, the most valuable stone in the entire huge building that goes up. The Bible says when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was declared with power to be the Son of 
God. So Peter boldly insisted that Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. This is the gospel. It indeed is narrow. It is exclusive. But it is what Jesus Christ declared when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. I realize that this is the offense of the cross. The empty tomb is offensive because there is no other Savior. It's not too surprising that the early church ran into what? Pretty strong, intolerant people who didn't want to hear such an exclusive message. It starts right there in chapter 4. But they didn't back away from the truth. Peter all the more said, there's only one way to God. And the claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God offends the sentiments of some people who refuse to acknowledge the uniqueness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There is no one like him. Rather than resisting the exclusive offer of salvation by faith alone, Peter and I would again concur and say, let's turn from our sin, let's turn to Christ and know that he will save you he alone can save you. Indeed, in Christ, there is the greatest blessing you'll find in all the world. You will be joined to Christ in his death for sin. You will be joined to Christ in his resurrection and no newness of life. There is no other way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we once again are deeply humbled as we think about these words, words that confront us, words that bring us to the point where we have to be quiet and shut our mouths and stop trying to prove that we're better than we really are. And we have to admit, Lord, that we are far more sinful and corrupt than we ever imagined, and yet we are far more loved than we ever could believe. Lord, we pray that you would take these truths about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May you emblazon them upon our conscience, upon our mind. May you impress them upon, Lord, our hearts, that we might not be able to dismiss these things easily, that we might think through the implications, that we might Lord, find for many of us who walk around wondering if we truly can enjoy you because we feel like there's so many things that we're ashamed of. Lord, free us from that as we embrace the gospel, as we celebrate and look at the empty tomb. Lord, remind us of these promises of full cleansing for everyone who repents and believes. And Father, we pray that you would embolden us. Help us not to waver. Help us not to compromise. Help us not to Water down the gospel. Help us, Lord, to show that there is only one way. And thank God there is one way. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided us the one way. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be loving to people who find offense in that. Help us to realize they're spiritually blind. We pray, Lord, that you might cause us to be bold witnesses who bring the good news to others always marveling that we would be shown such grace 
and forgiveness and such love. Father, change our lives, I pray, because of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Free us from the fear of man. Make us into people whose hearts embrace people that are different from us and show love to people who, for whatever reason, aren't necessarily impressed with us and don't share much in common with us. Lord, give us, we pray, enlarged hearts toward people that are hard to love because of the power of your resurrection. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never gotten off the fence or who have maybe been relying on some of these false assurances, Lord, I pray today this would be the day where they would themselves turn from sin and turn to Christ in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.